Hello, everyone, to this evening's event. We're going to be discussing Can Palestine Be Free? Today's forum is hosted by the socialist media site Labour Outlook and the events platform Arise, a festival of left ideas. Everyone is aware of the world events at the moment, um, so I'm sure we all agree it's a particularly important discussion with the latest Israeli government atrocities that we've seen against the Palestinian people, um, actions that are being widely condemned around the globe, um, including by the UN General Assembly the other day, um, and a number of aid and human rights organisations um, around the world as well. Um, for many of us who've been active in solidarity with Palestine and the Palestinian people over the years, you know, the the last few weeks have been further confirmation of the need to not only stand firming in solidarity with the Palestinian people, but also call out um, our own British government, the US and others for their backing of Israel's illegal occupation and abuses of human rights, including through continued arms sales. So to discuss this and sort of some of the history, we're joined today by Bernard Regan, who's a long-term campaigner for and writer on Palestinian rights. Bernard's a member of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign Executive Committee um, and author of the Balfour Declaration, Empire, Mandate and Resistance in Palestine. He was the first recipient of uh, what was then the NUT, the National Union of Teachers, um, Steve Sinner Award in 2015 in recognition of his contribution to international solidarity. So we want to have as many questions and comments from you, the audience, as possible tonight. Um, because of the size of the audience today, we've got volunteers who are going to be facilitating this through the Q&A function in Zoom. So please post both your comments for discussion and your questions to Bernard in the Q&A function. After Bernard's introduction, We'll have time for a few rounds of questions from the audience, so please start thinking of your questions now. And if you can, to keep like doing events like this, we're going to be posting like different links throughout uh, Bernard's talk, some about his book, uh, but also like other relevant campaign links, but also um, occasionally a donate link will come up. So please bear in mind these links uh, and you'll be able to see them at the end as well. But right now I'm going to turn straight to our speaker for tonight. Bernard Regan. Thank you very much, Sean, and, and thank you to the organisers for organising this event. I think it's uh, a, an extremely important uh, discussion to have and uh, a very urgent one to have. I'm going to begin by just sort of recalling to ourselves the current situation, because clearly what is happening at the moment is absolutely horrendous. I know that Many of you will be watching these events on the television and be following news reports and so on. So you are familiar with them. But the scale of it is significantly different. Um, Israel has, over the last 20 odd years, attacked Gaza on a number of occasions. Uh, the numbers of fatalities that have occurred in those, which of course have been unjustified and too high, but has been in the at the most in the couple of thousands but we're now looking at a scenario where it's, I think, realistic to talk about 20,000 Palestinians in Gaza having been killed, having been murdered. Uh, of those, something like 50% are women and children. And of the 2.3 million population of Gaza, uh, sorry, 1.8 million of those 
are displaced, many of them sheltering in uh, schools uh, like the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, uh, which has 156 schools in which people are uh, sheltering. But tragically, that has not uh, saved them from the uh, bombing that the Israeli Air Force and the Israeli military are carrying out. They claim that the targets are strategic targets related to Hamas, but it's very clear that they are bombing, I think, quite calculatedly. I don't think it's indiscriminate. It's quite calculated. Um, and it's quite clear to me that it is appropriate to use the word genocide when we're talking about the situation that the Palestinians face in Gaza. We see, if you look at the statistics, that of those who have been killed, there are something like 300 families, I believe, who have lost more than 10 members of their family. In other words, it's very clear that we were talking about people's homes that are being bombed uh, and destroyed. Uh, and far from having any kind of military significance, it's clear, as I said, that this is a, a genocidal act that's being taken, uh, taking place. Um, we also know that the brutality of this, I think, is displayed by the way in which they're quite not only quite indiscriminate, uh, but that they are really um, in a, a blanket way uh, carrying out bombings. Uh, and two um, military kind of theses, if you like, a set of ideas inform that. One is called the Hannibal Directive, which is a policy of the Israeli army that even where there are their own hostages being held by uh, an opponent like um, Hamas in this case, but like Hezbollah in previous years, uh, they are quite prepared to destroy everyone in that building or in those buildings where any hostages might be being held if they can't retrieve them. Uh, so that is you know, one of the facets and a, an exemplar, if you like, of the way in which they operate. And the other is a thing called the Dahia Doctrine, uh, named after a southern suburb of Beirut, where they went in and just carpet-bombed a whole area. So what they're doing in Gaza is not something new. The attack in Dahia in South Beirut occurred in 2008. So what I want to say, just underline, and, uh, is that this is not a war, in my view, on Hamas. It is a war on the Palestinian people. And I think that's also confirmed uh, by the way in which they're conducting themselves, that is the Israeli military are conducting themselves in the West Bank. Uh, there are something like 280 odd people who have been killed since the 7th of October uh, and about three and a half thousand, maybe 4,000 now people arrested uh, and detained. So there's a repressive uh, operation going on in the West Bank, clearly designed to squash any form of solidarity, uh, any form of manifestation that might express support for those uh, suffering in Gaza or resisting. And it's equally the case inside Israel itself. Palestinians within Israel, or 48 Palestine, as Palestinians often call it, are facing a situation where they are not able to express their views, to express their solidarity. I mean, one example was in Nazareth recently where there was an attempt to hold a demonstration. Demonstrations normally held um, at the entrance to towns, but this was organised in the centre of the town. And despite that, it was attacked by the Israeli police 
who broke it up. So there's a real offensive going on against all Palestinians, in my view. So when people talk about a war on Hamas or a war on Gaza, it's a war on Palestinians. Clearly, uh, Gaza is the front line and the one that is suffering most of that. And it's obvious also that they planned it in some detail. You can see that from these maps that they produce where they say, you know, these are the squares that we're going to attack and this is where you should go to and all of that kind of thing, which we know is not true because the evidence for that is there for everyone to see. Um, but that kind of detailed mapping and targeting and use of um, AI is something that's kind of quite widespread. So there is a clear attempt, in my view, to um, destroy not only uh, schools and, and so on, but hospitals and the whole social infrastructure of Gaza. And this is important because when we come to talk about peace, what will it look like for the people of Gaza? On top of that, they're talk they've obviously they've cut off a long time ago electricity, gas, water supply. But the, now they're discussing the question of flooding the tunnels that they allege Hamas was using uh, and have been kind of a, a, a part of the military operation that's carried out and flooding it with seawater. Now, why this is significant is because Gaza relies for a large part uh, on an aquifer, which is called the coastal aquifer, that runs down, as the name suggests, uh, the coastline. Uh, and it's from there that they get some of their drinking water. But what has been happening in recent years, uh, well, over a period of time, but has accelerated in recent years, is that that aquifer is becoming polluted with uh, an ingress of salt water. So the Israelis are now talking about flooding their tunnels uh, and um, that that will, uh, they say, is in order to um, disrupt the operations of Hamas through those tunnels, but it will actually also uh, further damage the aquifer, further damage the water supply. And so the Palestinians in Gaza are wholly dependent on, on water from Israel to survive. And it's just like 1948. I won't go into detail, but in 1948, when the uh, Israeli state uh, came into being, uh, it was preceded by what was called Plan Dalit, which is spelt out by historians like Ilan Pape and Avish Lyam and Norma Salah and others, explaining that they had a systematized plan of what they were going to do in terms of attacking villages and towns and terrorizing people, uh, carrying out massacres in places like Deryasin and Tantura, Accra, Saliha, and uh, Lida, uh, Lida, where they killed 250 people. So it's, it is a repetition of this, and it's interesting because one of the Israeli politicians has talked about this being the second war of independence, the first war of independence being 1948, uh, this being the second is what they call it. And in my view, it is what the Palestinians would call it and what it should rightly be called, uh, the Nakba, a second Nakba that is taking place. Despite, and we've seen this again in the media and, and widely reported, attempts by many people to intervene to try to prevent uh, this war continuing, seeking a ceasefire. Uh, in the General Council, uh, the General Assembly, rather, of the United Nations yesterday, an absolutely overwhelming vote, 153 nations voting for a ceasefire, 10 um, voting against and 23 abstaining, including, uh, disgracefully, the United Kingdom. 
when you look at those 10 countries, apart from the two obvious ones of um, uh, United States and Israel, uh, some of them are very tiny, basically colonies of the United States. I think that's not an uncharitable thing to say, uh, but who have a track record of being simply, uh, you know, a vote for uh, the United States on any policies it decides to act on. So it's an unexceptional uh, set of people that voted against the ceasefire, but uh, there was a clear and overwhelming call. And I think, I don't think, you know, that I've seen, and I think it's very hard to recall an example where a Secretary General of the United Nations has intervened so vehemently uh, to call for action by the United Nations organization to intervene and to stop what is happening. I mean, other other people on the call may know better than me, but I, probably the last I can remember of any similarity, it, it was in the case of the Congo when Dag Hammarskjöld um, tried to um, secure the independent or secure the methods by which uh, Patrice Lumumba and the uh, Congolese were trying to assert their independence against the Belgians and others and the Americans, the CIA, of course, who were involved. So it's very clear that there was an overwhelming um, intervention that took place and that that vote was very clear. Um, it's just, I mean, we know this, but of course it makes a nonsense of this so-called uh, international community that people sometimes appeal to as kind of the arbiters of justice and legitimacy when, you know, what one can see is de facto, it's a question of what is the position that the Americans take. They're not the only significant figure, but in this instance, they're very, they are significant in terms of the intervention that they've made. So what are the, what are the chances of a ceasefire taking place and negotiations happening? Well, I think you have to look at some of the players in this uh, scenario and beginning by looking at the um, Israeli cabinet itself. And one of the things that I think is a common phenomena and is certainly present in this government is the the presence of military figures former generals of the israeli defense force or the israeli occupation force as we ought to call it who um, are members of political parties and are now sitting in the cabinet uh, and deciding the course of the war as it goes ahead um, the government that's been elected which was elected at the end of 2022 is i think by all consensus the most right-wing government, and I know you know that might seem hard to believe because there's been a plethora of right-wing governments in Israel, but it is the most right-wing government that we have seen. Um, apart from Netanyahu, it's composed of a mixture of former generals and people who are utterly right-wing uh, racists, and and you know that's possibly a charitable way of describing them. The generals include people like Joab Gallant, Benny Gantz, uh, Gadi Eisenkot, all of these who have in the past been involved in military operations against the Palestinians of one kind or another. You have people like uh, Bezalel Smotrich, who himself is a settler, who has said that in his view, there are two million Nazis in the West Bank, uh, and uh, therefore, of course, should be treated like the Nazis. And he's also gone on to say there's no such thing as Palestinians, echoing a comment made by a former prime minister of Israel, Golda Meir, who uh, said the same thing. 
with the implication that Palestinians could leave the West Bank and could be driven into Jordan, for example, or Lebanon or, or Egypt. And, and that's the mentality of the people you're dealing with. Um, people who hold ministerial positions, uh, but at the same time are members of this war cabinet in determining, determining the, the, the course uh, that this um, action will take. And another one, uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is, uh, describes himself as a Kahanist, a follower of, uh, of a particular cult uh, within um, Israel, uh, who, uh, amongst whom was a man called Baruch Goldstein, who went into the mosque in Hebron, Al-Khalil, and uh, murdered uh, more than 20, I think it was 27, 28 people. Uh, and uh, Ben-Gavir had a picture of this murderer uh, on his wall in his house. So this is the character of some of the people who form the cabinet, which is making decisions. Um, it's true, I think, to paraphrase the um, uh, writer on, on Prussian history, Friedrich von Schotter, who said, when he said, Prussia is not, is not a country with an army, but an army with a country. And, and that's been said of Israel too, that it's not, a, it's not a country with an army, but an army with a country. Uh, and you can see that in all sorts of ways. I mean, I won't go into it, but if you look at the curriculum in schools, the way in which the uh, army is kind of consistently celebrated, even from kindergarten, and there is an army day, children dress up in military uniform and so on. And there's this kind of um, glorification uh, of the military. Um, and and uh, one could go into that in more detail, but the whole ideology is built around the uh, uh, the, the, the army as a central feature of, of the life of, of uh, Israel. So the challenge that the Palestinians face is extremely strong. It's one in which what we've seen in recent years has been the introduction, introduction of uh, even further measures to discriminate against Palestinians uh, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem and in Gaza, but also within uh, Israel, the state of Israel. There are an estimated something like 50 odd laws within the Israeli uh, legal system, which are explicitly discriminating or have de facto impact on things like employment, on things like promotion, on things like um, what is taught in schools uh, and all of the curriculum within the universities, uh, access to certain areas of employment. Uh, all of these things kind of are components within that. Uh, and that is, you know, part of the kind of whole ethos uh, of how Israel uh, operates. Now, I think one has to look at, and I'll just jump slightly to the role of the United States of America. It's been very much involved even since the early 1950s when it was giving funds to the Israeli government, funds which by and large were used for military purposes. Um, for example, under the Obama administration, uh, they voted a 10-year program of $3.8 billion uh, a year to Israel, which was under the heading of aid. But in fact, 99.7% of that money was spent on military operations, military equipment, and so on and so forth. And as I said, that's been going on since 1951. So the United States is heavily involved in providing uh, financial aid. Uh, it's somewhat, therefore, in my view, uh, 
completely hypocritical and, and dishonest and dismissive of the notion that Biden and Blinken are have any real concern about the conduct of the Israelis in terms of abiding by international law. It's a nonsense when, uh, on the one hand, they're making these comments, whilst on the other, they're giving Israel massive and colossal amounts of arms uh, in the course of that. Uh, I, I, Bunker-busting bombs, um, thousands of shells. Uh, they have two warships in the eastern Mediterranean, which are there as a clear threat to anyone else uh, not to intervene. Uh, they're providing all of the arms which are stored inside Israel. Uh, they're making them available for the Israeli military in the event that they need them. Uh, so this idea that somehow uh, Biden and Blinken are kind of trying to moderate uh, Israel, in my view, is is um, uh, it's fallacious. It's not worth really a serious discussion. But I do think that the Americans recognize that there are challenges. Uh, they uh, through Trump in particular, initiated a whole program, and this is coming on to the regional questions, uh, which was aimed at incorporating and drawing in the reactionary regimes of many of the uh, bodies across countries across uh, the uh, Western Asia, Middle East, as we call it, uh, into a collaboration with the Israeli regime and getting them to sign up through what was called the Abraham Accords, uh, a converging uh, set of um, relationships. And I think what has happened with these events in Gaza is that that has really blown that open for the time being, because many of those governments recognize that that policy in the present context is completely uh, unpopular. Uh, one even saw as a very small indicator early on at the World Cup um, the Arab crowds who were there and many of the football teams from Arab countries who were there um, carrying the Palestinian flag and amongst the Palestinian masses uh, and amongst the Arab masses rather, uh, there is clear support for the rights of the Palestinians uh, to, go, to go forward. We can see um, that happening uh, in the Middle East and America is slightly kind of apprehensive about what's going on because it's not anymore a sole player. In recent uh, months, China has um, uh, helped to get uh, some sort of border accommodation between the Saudis and Iran, uh, and has also uh, kind of uh, extended its influence because it's building, as you know, the Belt and Road um, land corridor for transporting Chinese goods into European and other markets, but it has also a maritime Belt and Road uh, plan, which is terminating in the head of the uh, Arabian Gulf. And so having the Saudis and the Iranians come into an accommodation would be an important part to achieve that. So that's another factor why the Americans are slightly apprehensive about what's going on. There have been demonstrations in, in Amman. Uh, there have been demonstrations in other parts of the Arab world, uh, in Yemen and so on. Uh, and clearly, the apprehension there would be if, as a result of the um, Americans appearing uh, to be too supportive of Israel, that alienation spread not only to demonstrating solidarity with the Palestinians in those respective countries, but that it presaged another potential Arab Spring in the area, uh, which would clearly be something to challenge the United States' interest. Uh, the area, for example, still holds 
um, more than 50% of the world's oil reserves and 53%, I think it is, of the world's gas reserve. So it's an area that the United States um, has very much material interest in that. Uh, so we can see that, uh, you know, there are lots of factors that make the uh, Americans cautious about what's happening. So what about uh, the reality of the situation and is it possible to conceive of a peace? Certainly from the point of view of the United States and amongst the Israeli military, they're talking about the day after, as they call it. In other words, what happens uh, when they achieve what they perceive to be their objectives. And I don't think that they can because they see it Ex almost exclusively, I think, in military terms, and a lot of Western commentators follow the same route, and they think Hamas is solely a, a military organization, but it's not. It has a quite broad um, uh, political movement behind it. Uh, many of you will remember that in 2006, it actually won a majority in the Palestinian Authority in the elections, including seats in the area of the West Bank. So, so to have a crude notion that the West Bank is Fatah um, um, and the Gaza is Hamas is, is, is a gross simplification. It's more, much more complex than that. Uh, and Hamas has you know, wider roots than that. And I heard a report yesterday, I think it was, from a Palestinian Authority spokesperson who was saying that the standing of Hamas, not to do with October the 7th, but to do with the fact that they are perceived to be resisting, uh, that the standing of Hamas is is going up in the West Bank as well. And you can see that in a sense, I think, by the attacks that have taken place in Janine, which is um, an area that allegedly um, is one that is supportive of, of Hamas and so on. So I'm not optimistic about the attitude of the Israeli government, about their willingness to come to talks. I think they had a, a paper that was presented uh, very early on, actually, on the 13th of October, which spelt out three options. The first of those was that the population remain in Gaza and that the Palestinian Authority should rule it. Well, that's been dismissed already by Netanyahu and the others who are saying that they regard um, uh, Fatah and they regard the Palestinian Authority as... Uh, only differing from Hamas in that Hamas want to get rid of Israel today uh, and the Palestinian Authority wants to get rid of uh, the Israelis uh, over a slightly longer period. So that's ruled out. Option B is that the population remain in Gaza with the emergence of a local Arab authority. It's impossible, I think, to conceive of that without that being actually Hamas or uh, politicians who come from that political uh, sector. And the third option, option C, which tragically I fear is one that they will be seriously looking at, is the what they say is the evacuation of the civil pop civilian population from Gaza into Sinai to drive them out of historic Palestine completely and into Egypt. Those, I think, are the kind of scenarios that they're talking about. And I do think I worry that the last one is is one that they would have little compunction in trying to put into operation because it's what many of them uh, in the government, in the cabinet, and previously going back through the history of political Zionism, people like Jabotinsky and so on, is the kind of view that they had, that they 
wanted an Eretz Israel, which extended beyond the Jordan Valley into what is now part of Jordan. They wanted it to extend to the Golan Heights and even into southern Lebanon, and they wanted it to expand across the Sinai. So there, there is a kind of mentality and a history of that kind of thinking within uh, the Israeli body politic in terms of what to do. One of the things that I think may be challenging for the Israelis on a slightly different level, they clearly the military uh, contest, if you like, a, a war is continuing and is by no means resolved. And you can see that from what has happened in recent days with fatalities being uh, being taken on the Israeli army side. Um, but what is other factors that come into play are what might happen with the Israeli economy. And it's interesting reading some of the economic commentators on this uh, about the fact that um, the Israeli economy has already lost, I think it's something like $16 billion since the outbreak of the war. Uh, there's been a massive decline in tourism, which is a not insignificant part of the GDP. Um, and the number of flights leaving uh, Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv have dropped or had dropped when this report was written from 500 down to 100. Uh, they're seeing, uh, because um, Israel has a has a has a, a reserve army as well as a kind of professional army. Um, many of those uh, reservists have left their jobs, and so there are areas of uh, of work that are being neglected, and and that is potentially causing some sort of challenge. Um, so we're seeing all of those things coming into play. So it's it, it, there are other factors, if you like, beyond the purely military one, and I think it's a mistake just to look at that and look at the military equation in isolation and think because Israel has more firepower, that means it can result in a, a, an outright sort of victory. And it's very interesting to hear, for example, the United States Secretary uh, of State for Defence, Lloyd Austin, who said that um, what Israel risks is a strategic defeat unless it protects Palestinian civilians in Gaza. So there are sections within the United States administration who I think have a more cautious, even more cautious attitude and who would want to kind of suggest that um, the Israelis kind of draw in their horns in terms of what they're doing. Very quickly, in terms of can there be peace? Well, yes, there can, of course, be peace. Uh, but the question is, will there be justice? And that's the important thing because peace without justice will not be lasting. It will not result in a uh, de development that is uh, positive. It has to be something that goes beyond uh, tokenism and be real justice for the Palestinians. And only the Palestinians can decide that at the end of the day. But what we do know from past experiences is that if you look at any uh, conflict in a national liberation struggle, which is what I would argue this is, uh, you will see that uh, the so-called major power has in the end finished up having to talk to those it was fighting against. Uh, this has happened in Ireland. We've seen it not only in the 1920s, but of course more recently. Uh, we've seen it in Africa with the ANC uh, and the end of apartheid. Uh, and we've seen it in other parts of the world. So uh, a real peace and justice would have to talk to representatives of all of the Palestinian people. It would have to result in a, in a conclusion, in my view, that established uh, a Palestinian state and not some kind of 
Bantustanization like the Oslo Accords uh, resulted in. Uh, and I think that will come about not just because of the resilience and the resistance of the Palestinian people, which undoubtedly is there, but also because of international solidarity. And that's something I hope perhaps we can discuss in the course of this uh, this meeting. Um, and the last thing that it has to contribute to that is a change, in my view, in internal Israeli politics. I have to be honest and say I don't see that happening in a short space of time. I don't see uh, the breakup of the kind of coalition that exists there, and I don't see a diminution of the kind of chauvinism that drives the re racist and reactionary politics that are there. Um, but I do think that it's an issue that we have to continue discussing and working in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bernard. That was hugely informative. Um, I hope everyone else found it as informative as, as I did. Um, just to say, like, we're joined by um, loads of you on Zoom tonight, but also from um, around the country, so including Swatham, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Sheffield, Stockport, um, Somerset, Derbyshire, Hastings, Gateshead, uh, Liverpool, Leeds, North and South London, multiple locations, um, but also Spain and Norway, so internationally as well. Um, I'm just going to give you all a reminder to post your questions in the Q&A if you haven't done so yet. Um, gonna give uh bernard like a 30 second breather um and we're gonna i'm gonna hand over for a minute to um ben hayes who is a volunteer and is going to tell us a bit more about today's organizers and what you can do to support and then we're gonna come back to bernard with a couple of questions so ben uh yeah thanks chair just been asked to say a few words on behalf of the arise volunteer team uh, firstly, as those of you who are regular attendees will be aware, these events do require funds to put on, uh, whether that's booking a physical venue or using streaming platforms for online forums such as this. Um, so if you are able to contribute towards those costs uh, in this, this season of giving, it is very much appreciated uh, by all of us. And speaking of events, we've got a diary date for next year uh, on Saturday the 17th of February. Or I was just putting on a day school in London with MPs, trade unionists, campaigners, academics and international guests discussing a range of topics uh, covering both domestic politics and economics as well as various global issues. So it'd be great to see you there. Um, the links both for donating and to register for that event should be being posted in the chat. Uh, so thanks for coming along this evening and listening to this appeal and uh, hand you back over. Thank you, Ben. Right, I'm going to go to our first batch of questions. We've had, I think unsurprisingly, a number of questions, an example being uh, John on Zoom, and a number of questions that relate to how the recent attacks and um, the increase in settlements is a two-state, still a potential future. We've got also a number of questions sort of raising the issue of how the mainstream media uh, portray Gaza and the Palestinian Authority as, you know, independent and not really giving a proper reflection of the illegal occupation. So, for example, Sue saying that uh, still too often we hear on the mainstream media the narrative of Israel not having any control over Gaza or the West Bank, being dependent on Israel for water is not being independent. 
And then I think linked to this as well, um, Acresta sort of saying a bit more about how Israel has been expanding aggressions and abuses of international law in the West Bank too in the recent period, while the focus has understandably been on Gaza. So a bit more information about what's been going on in the West Bank. So that's your first batch, Bernard. Thank you. Right. <laughs> I've, thank you, Sean. I've, I've made a note. Hopefully I'll, I'll address them, but do, do tell me, interrupt me if I'm not dealing with them. Okay, so I, I think the big crunch question probably of the four, if I may, just single it out, is the issue of one state and two states. Uh, and this relates to the question that we're really trying to address, and that is, um, can Palestine be free? And the truth of the matter is that uh, essentially the negotiations that took place in Oslo in the 1990s between, I think it was about 92 and 94 or 5, uh, resulted in a, a process which was meant to lead to the establishments of two states. And what it did was it um, divided the West Bank in particular into three zones of operation, um, zones A, B and C. Zone A was an area which was meant to be solely under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Zone B was meant to be one in which there was coordination between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli Authority. And Zone C was meant to be the uh, area exclusively under the control of the Israelis. Now, the percentage of the area of those three groups was by no means equal. Um, the number, the percentage in area A, I think, was around about three, four percent of the land area of the West Bank. The area that was governed uh, allegedly jointly by the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority was about 24 percent. And the area exclusively under the control of the Israelis, that is area C, was 74%. And Oslo was described by the Palestinian intellectual Edward Said as the Palestinians Versailles. In other words, it was a settlement which was wholly and exclusively detrimental to uh, the Palestinians. Uh, and in the course of the period that has followed that, what we've witnessed is an absolute explosion of, sorry to use that language, but I think massive, massive and rapid increase uh, and expansion of settlement buildings across the whole of the West Bank and across large swathes of the area of East Jerusalem, to the extent that there are now, and estimates vary because it uh, literally is changing by the day, uh, but there are probably in excess of 700,000, 800,000 Palestinian, uh, sorry, Israeli Jewish citizens living in settlements in the West Banks. And those settlements, settlements sounds like a temporary scenario, but they are towns. They are wholly built new towns uh, with all the facilities that uh, are required for, you know, uh, civil and civic services. And they're joined by roads that are exclusively for their use uh, from those settlements into Israel, like umbilical cords uh, connecting them. And the Palestinians are excluded from those roads, uh, as well, of course, as being excluded 
uh, entirely from from the settlements. So if you were to look at a map of um, the West Bank, and I'm sorry, I don't have it ready, and I apologise for that, but if you looked at a current map of those areas that are inhabited by the Palestinians and uh, those areas that are under, uh, ex allegedly under exclusive uh, Palestinian control, it's very, very few. And even, by the way, and I've been... Um, to the West Bank many times, uh, even in those areas that are allegedly under the exclusive control of the Palestinian Authority, the, the Israeli military um, are at the gates and at the entrances and exits and um, uh, go into those areas, uh, you, you know, and arrest people and so on and so forth. So this 74%, by the way, uh, that they control, um, some of it is extremely important economically. The Jordan Valley, which was a centre of Palestinian agriculture, uh, was is a large part of that percentage. Uh, they designated some of them as, uh, you know, environmental zones in allegedly, you know, greenwashing uh, their occupation. Uh, and others are literally military uh, live free fire zones for practice by the IDF, and therefore they say no Palestinians can go into those areas. And we've seen recently they've been smashing up uh, not only accommodation, but schools in places like Masafayata uh, in the South Hebron Hills recently. So what I'm describing in terms of this one state, two state, is that the, the credibility of having a two separate states with very clear borders that people think about when they look at the uh, the map of 1967. It's the Israelis that are destroying any potential for a two-state solution. They are destroying it. Uh, so I think that uh, it's a question that will come up, and it's coming up, you know, organically from a variety of sources. It's not just, if you like, people on the left outside looking in and saying, well, you know, wouldn't it be easy? I mean, it won't be easy because even the one-state uh, would require justice for the Palestinians, as I said when I was concluding you know, my remarks earlier. And that means the right of return, the right for Palestinian refugees who now live in Jordan or in Lebanon or in Syria or other parts of the world to return to their homeland. It would mean reparations for the properties and businesses that were stolen from the Palestinians in 1948 uh, and in 1967. And of course, in the case of Gaza, it would mean the reparations for all the damages that have been done uh, and the rebuilding of all of that. So one state or two state, the political challenges, if you like, are very similar and, and uh, clearly are huge. Um, so uh, that's really a difficulty. In terms of the mainstream media um, and the way they present it about Gaza and um, the Palestinian Authority, I you know, have to say that the notion that Hamas is a kind of military organization exclusively uh, conducting a, a set of military operations and they don't have any roots in the mass of people or that in, in, alternatively that the mass of people do not perceive them as, as, as politically uh, leaders in, in Gaza and in sections of the West Bank is just a completely um, lunatic, one has to say, way of looking at the situation with any kind of gravity or any kind of attempt to to grapple with that reality it's much more complex in 2006 i think i said earlier they won the legislative elections in 2007 8 they were on the verge of uh creating a unity government with fatah who was the other main, 
main political party. And they had a political program which was, um, you know, unexceptional, I think, in the sense of social uh, engagement around education and health and so on and so forth. And the elections that they were elected in in 2006, after the West had been baying at the Palestinians to have elections, the elections that Hamas won, by the way, were designated by the Carter Center, founded by Jimmy Carter, the former U.S. president, were described as completely democratic. That was what they said. They sent observers and everything was totally above board. So the mainstream media's kind of understanding of this is just to imbibe, if you like, the Israeli ideas about how to look at this. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's inadequate and it won't arm us uh, to parrot, if you like, those kind of conceptions of things. Um, I want to just say something about... Uh, something I didn't touch on and I meant to, and that was the whole question of the United Kingdom's relationship with uh, with Israel, because this is a major issue and I think it will be an issue going forward, certainly in the event of a general election and in terms of questions to put, the, put to the political parties. And that is a document which is called the 2030 UK-Israel Roadmap. And this is a document which has 10 uh, sections to it, um, which go through in detail areas that there is going to be cooperation. And it includes, for example, defence and security, trade and investment, cyber intelligence, science, innovation and technology, um, climate, health, uh, culture, education and higher education, uh, development and gender. And all of these, they're looking to collaborate. And it's framed by uh, an expression that the British government dis describes the Israeli government as a strategic partner. And it goes on to say that they will be promoting the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism as the framework within which this whole process is taking place. So I think we can expect, you know, even more ideological offensives around the right to debate uh, about Israel as a state and its government and its actions. My apologies, Sean, if that was rather long, but uh, yeah, I was provoked. <laughs> No, that was great. Thank you. And actually, how you ended leads really neatly onto sort of the next set of questions that I was going to come on to, because there are a number of, of questions on the US role, and it's linked to the role and the view of the British government. So we had um, sort of David on Zoom sort of saying, can you envisage anything? That Israel would do that would meet US disapproval. You know, is it even, you know, is there a possibility of um of Biden changing his stance? And then I think sort of like linked to that, there's a number of sort of questions, including from Logan, who sort of says, with the UN voting overwhelmingly to support a ceasefire in recent days, is Britain's consistent towing of the US policy line? How does that isolate Britain internationally in the kind of today's new geopolitical world. And that links to another question which has come up, which is what role has Britain's colonial past in Palestine? You know, going back to the Belfair Declaration that you wrote about, how has that history played into how the situation now has developed? How is it reflected in our current role? And I guess also, you know, and how Britain sees Israel as its strategic partner going forward, as you were just saying. And then I think sort of linked to the British role, 
how, you know, I think it's worth drawing attention to Zara Sultana's recent efforts in Parliament um, and wondered if he had any comments on why Labour should support the call, not just for a ceasefire now, but also the call to end the selling of arms to Israel. That's obviously going to be a potential question that comes up in the general election, likely next year. Okay. In terms of whether there is a red line, if you like, that Israel might cross that would lead to the United States withdrawing its support, um, looking at it at the moment, they're committing so many outrages, I find it hard to think of one. But I I suppose being realistic, um, I think they would be anxious um, about the possibility of uh, creating a regional um, conflict. And so by that, I mean that I think they are cautious about what might happen in the case of uh, Hezbollah in the north in relation to Lebanon and the possibility that that might kind of explode into a more serious um, conflagration with not just, if you like, um, the current exchange of fire that's taking place, which is resulting in fatalities, we shouldn't forget that, but uh, a more generalised war. Um, The Israelis are, of course, occupying the Golan Heights illegally, according to the United Nations, which belong to Syria. So uh, if uh, they went further than that, and by the way, they did bomb Damascus uh, in the last few days. So, you know, they are quite um, capable of doing these things. Uh, And those things, I think, might um, uh, lead to questioning. And also, I think, in relation to Egypt, I suppose if they did decide that they were going to literally drive all of the Palestinians out of Gaza into the Sinai, I think that may well um, cause a rupture, a more serious rupture with the Egyptians because of their anxieties about the the, um, developments there. Because after all, when the last election took place, a a party was elected which was um, connected with the Islamic Brotherhood who have historic links with Hamas and so on. So in other words, there is a mass political base inside Egypt for support for the Palestinians, which if the Egyptians were to collaborate in any sort of way with the Israelis in a in a transfer of people, I think that might have some sort of impact. In relation to the UK being isolated, well, I, I think, you know, this is where it's interesting when you look at what they did, <clears throat> because they didn't actually vote with the Americans. <clears throat> They didn't veto the resolution that came forward at the um, Security Council. They abstained. Uh, They didn't vote against the resolution that came to the United Nations General Assembly. They abstained. Again, in the Security Council, a further vote, they abstained. And again, with a second uh, General Assembly vote, they abstained once more. So I think that indicates there are some... Uh, anxieties, if you like, uh, probably tied to the fact of Britain having uh, arms contracts with uh, some of the countries in the Middle East and that being a very significant uh, part of the equation. Um, But it is clearly the case that the British uh, government representatives are not going to break with the USA, uh, but on the other hand, they're playing a more subdued role in order not to be drawn in. Having said that, The British sent warships to the Eastern Mediterranean as well. They're operating drones out of Cyprus, uh, allegedly to try to identify where the hostages are being held. 
of course, when you're doing that, you're simultaneously uh, providing the Israeli military with um, potential targets in Gaza. So, uh, the, no, the British are not, uh, you know, they have blood on their hands too, in my view. Um, in terms of kind of Britain's uh, colonial record, well, it, it's absolutely clear that its legacy is very evident in what is happening today in Gaza and what is happening to the Palestinians. And I'll put it this way, um, for the first, uh, from the point of view, when the British occupied Palestine in 1917, and people forget that Britain occupied it from 1917 right the way through to 1948. So every, everything that happened in that time period was a consequence of British imperial, British colonial rule. And uh, they uh, subdued the Palestinians who were seeking to gain independence right from the early 1920s. Um, they treated them with complete disdain uh, and they were utterly um, arrogant and uh, racist towards the Palestinians in terms of their refusal to engage in a serious discussion with them. Uh, and that, that went by the way of denying any kind of um, potential structures that could be established to form, if you like, a putative state of beginnings of uh, processes that would lead to the establishment of a Palestinian state, which, by the way, in those days, the Palestinians were clearly saying would be one that was for all those people who resided in Palestine. In other words, it was not a Palestinian state, and a Palestinian Arab state. It wasn't a Muslim state. It wasn't a Muslim and Christian Palestinian state. It was a state for all, including the Jews uh, who were living in Palestine at the time. And that was denied. So that was a whole denial of democratic rights that took place. The biggest um, challenge, if you like, in my view, which really was a decisive part of the history, but is not talked about enough, and that was the uh, uprising in 1936 to 1939 by the Palestinians called the Thawra, um, which was means revolt or revolution. Uh, when they... Uh, in 1935-36, they called a general strike, which took place across the whole of Palestine. Uh, they formed national committees, which were local organizations, which were um, supporting and, and providing aid and assistance to the uh, uh, guerrilla fighters who were conducting a war against the British. And, and you know, you can read um, military commentators who will say to you, this was not a Palestinian versus um, Jewish or Zionist settlers uh, at the time, it was a fight by the Palestinians against the British. Uh, and the British used tactics which have been used subsequently by the Israeli Defence Force. They used human shields. The British did that. Uh, the British used collective punishment. Uh, the British used the destruction of houses and villages uh, where they perceived or they alleged um, supporters of the uprising were being lodged. They carried out the decimation of villages, literally, uh, like the you know the word comes from Roman times. Uh, they brought everybody, all the male uh, members of a village, uh, brought them out and shot every tenth member of the village. That's what the British did in 1936-39, and it's well documented. And some of the torture uh, that they inflicted on Palestinian uh, prisoners was absolutely horrendous. Running through, running the gauntlet. Uh, through soldiers wielding bayonets, trying to stab them, and all sorts of other horribly gruesome things, which uh, you know 
I'll, I'll, I'll document it under there. That's the British legacy. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just that they were doing that, but members of the paramilitary organisations of the Zionist bodies, uh, like the Irgun and various other groupings, were working alongside the British when that suppression of the Palestinian revolution was taking place in 1930-69. So they knew and learnt all of those things. They carried out a systematic um, examination of every town and village in Palestine, uh, working out the size of its population, its composition, its political character, whether it had been supportive of the uprising in 36-39. They documented that just in a way now the Israelis are using artificial intelligence to kind of document the whole of Gaza, partition it and target those areas where they perceive um, Hamas or resistance is taking place. Um, the last thing was the question of the parliamentary efforts um, uh, and the selling of arms. Well, certainly I, I think at this moment in time, uh, as South Africa has done, uh, diplomatic relations should be cut. It's a symbolic gesture, but nevertheless, it's a very emphatic statement of um, repudiation of the way in which Israel is acting towards the Palestinians. And I certainly think that British uh, should the British government should cease all sales of arms, which it, it does and alleges, as somebody said earlier on, uh, you know, high moral standards for its criteria for deciding to whom they should sell them. But we know that's a complete and utter nonsense. So, yes, there are things that Britain could do uh, and things that the solidarity movement is developing, like the boycott campaign, which has seen in recent days Puma withdrawing its uh, sponsorship of these Israeli football team. Um, and of course, these are symbolic, but they're important messages that go to the Palestinians. When I talk to friends in, 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 in Palestine, in the West Bank, uh, and, Pal and Palestinian friends inside Israel, they are very, very aware of the demonstrations that we hold and of activity that we're engaged in. They're grateful for that. And we know uh, that, of course, uh, that will not resolve everything, but it's an important message to send to Palestine. Thank you so much, Bernard. And and thank you so much for this evening's event. I think it's been hugely, hugely informative and a really, really uh, an hour well spent in your company, I think, uh, for us all. Um, so I'm just going to, you know, I think those last remarks of yours were a great place to end, actually. So I'm going to just make some final concluding remarks before we close the event, if that's okay. I want to thank everyone for coming along. I want to thank the volunteers for making tonight possible. I would hope that we see some of you in the audience at the Arise Day School in February um, next year. Um, and please also do make sure that you join the Palestine Solidarity Campaign um, and support the local and national actions uh, that they are organising and will continue to organise, calling for a ceasefire now and other demands that come up. Online, our next discussion in the sort of socialist ideas sessions is on Rosa Luxemburg in January. It's a great start to your 2024 and details have been posted in the chat and we hope to see you there as well. So thank you very much uh, to Bernard and for all of you. And I'm going to close the event there. Thank you and have a happy new year. <laughs>